one, on the one. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Foothill Family Church. Would you stand up this morning, wave at somebody, let them know you're glad they are here today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, amen. Are you excited to be in church today? I want to scream it out from every mountain top. Your goodness knows no bounds. Your goodness never stops. Your mercy follows me. Your kindness fills my life. Your love amazes me. And I sing because you are good. And I dance because you are good. And I shout because you are good. You are good. Good to me. Come on, heads be good to you, amen. Nothing and no one comes anywhere close to you. The earth and oceans deep only reflect this truth. And in my darkest night, you shine as bright as Proclaim that you are good, that you are good, and in the sun or rain, my life celebrates that you are good, that you are good, and with a cry of praise, my heart will proclaim that you are good. Father, we thank you that you inhabit the praises 
of your people that where we are, you are there in our midst. A good and gracious heavenly Father. Would you give the Lord a shout this morning? Father, we praise you. You are good. Praise you, praise you, praise you, heavenly wanted to make sure you were awake at church this morning. Isn't God good? Father, have your way in this place this morning to move in our midst, to heal broken hearts. You are our King. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms.
the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Lost our Savior. Find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every fear has no at the sound of your great name the enemy he has to leave at the sound of your great name Jesus worthy is the lamb that was slain
And uh, so if you wouldn't just mind lifting your hand where you are, just let uh, other of those around you know that this is your first time. We want to let you know that we're really glad that you're here. Praise the Lord. And uh, we want you to feel among family today. Amen. Amen. Uh, just a few things we want to let you know about. If you have children uh, age four through, you know, I never know if it's fifth or sixth grade. grade. Honestly, <laughs> it just keeps changing. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. If they want to come, I guess they can come. Uh, but I think it's through fifth grade. Uh, but I think they'll let sixth graders in. I'm not sure. Talk to Miss Lauren. Anyway, we're going to have a great VBS. Um, we've invited a few of our neighbors, and they're coming. So it's a wonderful outreach to family, to neighbors, to friends. So even if you don't have children, you can invite children that you know. Amen. And so uh, you can register for that online at foothillfamily.com. And then next Sunday, we have a special treat for you. Pastor Chip is going to be ministering on Father's Day, and uh, they should have a picture up there of his lovely family. Oh. Oh. They, they have new equipment, so. Oh, no, that's not it. No. Well, you know what Pastor Chip looks like because you see him all the time. <laughs> anyway, he's going to be ministering next Sunday morning in the service. Our family will be out of town for a few days, taking a little R&R. And um, so we appreciate your prayers while we're gone. Amen. That we'll be spiritually, physically, in every way refreshed. Amen. Then we also want to let you know that on uh, the 26th Sunday, Tony and Patsy Caminetti will be with us. Um, if you've not heard them, you want to be here. We will be back. We're grateful that we're going to be back. They're very close friends of ours, and so we're going to spend a few days, enjoy a few days with them while they're here. Um, but they have uh, uh, had Bible schools and churches. Uh, they've ministered around the world, but Bible schools and churches in Italy, Singapore, and now for 17 years in Australia. And so they have um, decades of experience of walking with God. Their ministry is rich, and they're a lot of fun too. So you won't want to miss that service at 930 on the 26th. And then uh, if, you, um, if you are internet savvy, we would ask you uh, if you would subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can just uh, do a search. If I can do it, you can do it, and I do it. So it's YouTube, Foothill Family Church, and you can go there, and it is our church. And so we're on YouTube. We have a lot of people that watch us on YouTube. But if you have 1,000 subscribers, then good thi it's another level. Good things happen. I don't remember what they are. These guys know more than me, but it's good, right? Oh, Ryan especially, Ryan, wave to everybody. Ryan especially wants you to do that. And so we're very close. Do you know how close we are? I actually subscribed from the office this week. Yes, I did. We're only like 25 people away. So we're like at 975. And we have never even tried 
to get subscribers. We've never tried. We don't advertise. We don't ask you. But now we're asking you because we have 25 to go to the finish line. And some different times when we've had problems uh, with streaming live, if we would have had a 1,000 people, we wouldn't have had those problems. And so um, anyway, so if you will do that, that would be great. We would truly appreciate it. Amen. We're going to give you an opportunity to give this morning. Um, and so if you need an offering envelope, just you can just lift your hands. There should be some in the seat around you. Um, but if there's not, if there doesn't happen to be, you can lift your hand in the the ushers will help you. But I wanted to read this scripture to you. This scripture was quickened to my heart a few weeks ago, and then um, I just want to read a few scriptures in it. It's found in Genesis chapter 26. And this is about Isaac. And um, there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him, and he said, Do not go down into Egypt. So there's a famine in the land. The pervading thought is, Oh no, there's a famine in the land. Like, we're going to go down to Egypt. They came up with a plan. He came up with a plan. He must have been thinking about, Maybe I should go down to Egypt. But the Lord said, go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. So where God told him to be was the place that he said, I will bring you blessing. Did it make sense to the natural mind? Probably not. Let's get out of here. There's a famine in the land. But God had a plan. How important it is for us to follow the plan of God. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. I will give thee all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." Okay, then I'm going to skip down to verse 12. So Isaac, apparently Isaac is going to listen to the voice of God, and he's not going to go to Egypt. He's going to be where God told him to be. It says, then Isaac sowed in that land. What land? The land where there was famine. Does that make sense? There's famine in the land, and you're going to sow. He still sowed. Why? He believed God. Then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year a hundredfold. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. And so wherever God has each of us, we need a hold steady, we need to make sure we listen to the voice of God and we are exactly where God wants us to be and we need not fear. Hallelujah. We don't have to be afraid. Whatever the news says, whatever's going on, whatever the prediction, our greatest predictor is the word of God and his promise. God is no respecter of persons and what God did for Isaac, it's a principle. 
this is where I want you to be, and I will, I will bless you in that place. And we need to hold steady to that and claim that. Amen. I love that story. And God not only just, you know, he planted and he got a harvest. He got a great harvest, a hundredfold. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful, Father, that we can walk and live in faith and in joy and not in fear. Hallelujah. You take care of us. You supply our every need. We declare victory. We thank you that we hold steady as to your plan for our each of our lives, O oh Lord. And as a church family, we hold steady on that word. We hold steady on that direction. And we declare over our businesses, we declare over our finances, we declare over our families, because we are givers, because we are tithers, hallelujah, it's just how it works. You supply all of our needs in the name of Jesus. And let's just lift our hands and thank him now. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you. Hallelujah. We will not fear, but we trust in you. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. No, go. <laughs> well, if you had the opportunity to give, please stand and join us for worship.
We magnify your holy name. We worship you, Jesus. You are our King. You are our Savior. Father, we thank you for the precious Holy Spirit that's here among us. We thank you that he gives us utterance today. And we thank you that he opens the eyes of our spiritual understanding so that we might walk according to the righteous people, the righteous family you've made us to be. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 18. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, this is one place, and it's pretty rare, actually. This is one place where the Bible tells us what the parable meant before he told the parable. There are a lot of cases where he would uh, tell a parable and his disciples would come to him later and ask him what it meant. But this one identifies just what is represented and illustrated by the, the story that he's going to tell. And that is that men ought always to pray and not to faint. In other words, don't give up. So he said there was in a, in a city a judge which feared not God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect? which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, folks, the story that Jesus lays out for us has a very real application to the day that we live in. Here's a judge that's appointed, not because he fears God, in other words, will rule in a just manner because of his fear of God. Nor does he regard man. In other words, nor will he rule according to a proper interpretation of the law. It sounds like this judge is an Obama appointee. <laughs> and the situation that faces him is that a widow is requesting or desiring that she be avenged of her adversary. Well, that means her adversary has done her wrong. That means there's a, 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 a clear opportunity for her situation to be changed and turned around or else she wouldn't continue to come and plead her case. And that's what she's doing. She's pleading her case before the judge and notice the judge doesn't care about God in this situation. He doesn't care about right and wrong in this situation. He only cares about one thing, and that is she's wearing him out. She won't give up. And because she will not give up, 
the unjust judge rules in her favor. Now, God's not an unjust judge. Don't try to twist this around and say that this judge represents God because he doesn't. But he does represent a principle. And that principle is a godly principle. And that is if we won't give up, if we won't give up, then the blessings of God will turn to our favor. But notice the last phrase that really sets this parable apart from anything else that, that, uh, that I'm aware of in the scripture. And that is, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He relates this to the last days, the things that will happen in the last days. He represents that this is a last day illustration. When the Son of Man comes, when is he coming? He's not coming, talking about coming the first time because he's already there. So he's talking about coming. He's talking about the second coming of the rapture of the church. And when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? To me, this says don't give up concerning the things that you're believing for. Don't turn loose of your faith. Don't turn away or give up or throw in the towel when it comes to matters of faith. Now, folks, there's some things that the Bible tells us that we need to be aware of. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. This word perilous means dangerous times, but it also means strength-reducing times. In the last days, perilous times shall come. There shall be things that will attempt to weaken you concerning faith and concerning your believing for the blessings of God. Perilous times shall come. And then it talks about character issues. Men shall be lovers of themselves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Now, folks, there's nothing about the last days that's going to make these things happen for the first time. For example, well, what I mean is that by that, it says that men will be fierce, filled with wrath, filled with hate. They'll be traitors. They'll be false accusers. Well, there's always been false accusers. There's always been traitors. There have always been every one of these characteristics or, or character traits throughout the history of the world. So why does he single out these things? There were these things in his day when he was writing this to Timothy. So what makes it special about being the last days? What makes these things connected to the last days in a special way? The only answer I've got for that 
is that in the last days, all of these things will be taking place at once. All of these things will be taking place at once. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Well, depart from the faith means they let go. They turn loose of things that they once knew. And notice the first thing that it identifies that they'll be like, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, we see taking place in the attack against their country Now, folks, let me say a a couple of things regarding this. I'm not preaching politics. I couldn't care less about politics. Anybody that thinks politics is going to save the country hadn't kept their eyes open very long. I would love to see President Trump reinstated in office. I don't believe that he lost the last election. But be that as it may, Trump is not the savior for America. He never will be. If having him in position as president would change some things that have changed a lot over the last couple of years and put things back on a a righteous course, then I'm all for that. But that's not where my hope is. I don't have a hope for, for, for Trump to be reinstated. That doesn't mean I'm against it. I'd be cheering louder than anybody in the room if, it, if, it, if that happened. But Jesus is the only answer for the world. And to the degree that President Trump or any other president would follow the, the teachings and the example of Jesus, I would support that and cheer him on too. But one of the things that we see in politics maybe the predominant thing that we see in politics right now is speaking lies and hypocrisy. The left has made uh, an art form out of accusing the right for doing what they, the left, are doing. And that's what this is, speaking lies and hypocrisy. This is connected to the last days. In the latter times, Some shall depart from the faith, giving up on the things of God, in other words, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So what are the doctrines of devils and the seducing spirits sent to do? What is their mission to get you to give up on your faith? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Well, it's up to you and me. We don't have to give up. We don't have to abandon our faith no matter how strong or how much pressure the devil puts on us. It's up to us to decide whether or not we're going to give up or hold on. And that means giving up on our faith or holding on to it. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So what are these character traits in 2 Timothy and the speaking lies and hypocrisy in 1 Timothy, what do those things lead us to? 
Turn with, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus in chapter 23 has talked about the Pharisees and the error of the Pharisees and the, the warnings to them. And it says after that in chapter 24, verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. The disciples are impressed with this thing. Now, if you go back, and I've uh, had the opportunity to look at some things where they have put together 3D models of what the um, historical evidence and the archaeological findings have identified for what the Temple Mount looked like in those days. And it's, an, it's a massive, in, imposing structure. I mean, it's, it's so huge. If you've ever been to Israel and, and have seen that part of Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is and the Muslim mosques are on top of it now, it, 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 it doesn't compare in any way whatsoever to the way that it was in Jesus' day and what the disciples are talking about. And as I said, they're impressed with it. They're intimidated by it. They see the buildings and the structures and the gold and silver and all the precious metals and stones and things that are used to create it. And it was built by Herod to curry favor with the Jews so that they would not make his rule over them a contentious or spiteful thing. And Jesus tells them how worthless it is. It was built for the purpose of intimidation. And Jesus says, see not all these things, Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He doesn't just talk about it being destroyed. We know this was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Rome besieged Jerusalem. And he literally, Caesar literally instructed them to take every stone apart from the temple. Jesus wasn't impressed with it because it wasn't built in service to God or built to honor God. So he said, this thing's going to be torn down to where not one stone's going to be left on another. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation. That word nation is ethnos. It means ethnic group shall rise against another ethnic group. In other words, this promotion and teaching and position of white supremacy would qualify 
for nation rising against nation. And kingdoms shall rise against kingdom. This is talking about countries. Jesus could very easily have said, signs of the end times are white supremacy and the overthrow thereof, and Russia invading Ukraine. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Notice the word famine. We call them food shortages. Folks, there are things that are taking place in the day that we live in that are mind-boggling to the last generation. And the things that are taking place in our country, and it's not just America that things are taking place in, but that's certainly the place that we're more aware of and the place that we have more information about. And the things that are being done in our country to destroy our country are being done on purpose. There's no way that these things could just have happened if people weren't actively working toward that end. In the last 16 or 18 months, over 50 food supplying factories have been destroyed. How does that happen? Most of them have just been set fire upon or bombed. But there's one that had an airplane, a small single-engine airplane, dive bomb it and destroy it in that way. The things that are being done are being done on purpose. There are forces at work in this, this country and in, in the world that we live in that want people to suffer. Now, this is not a political rally. I'm not trying to incite people to action in any way whatsoever. Because as far as I'm concerned, the one that's behind it is the devil. There's no doubt that he's found a willing partner in the Democrat Party. But it's the devil's work. Even the people that are being used out of just pure evil, I don't hold anything against them. They're people that need Jesus more than anybody. But that doesn't mean we have to keep our eyes shut to what's going on. Well, if the question has been raised... From Jesus, from Jesus himself, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Then let's look at some things that the Bible says about this faith and how we should hold on to it. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. This is immediately after he's fed the 5,000. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed. And this is verse 23. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful, O ye of little faith? 
Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 8, verse 25, it's Luke's account of this same story. But I like the way that Luke says it. Jesus asked them, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? See, folks, we all believe in something. It's only a question of whether we believe in the right thing or the wrong thing. Everybody believes in something. So when Jesus asked his disciples, where is your faith? Matthew identifies it as little faith. But either way, it's got the same meaning. What are you believing in? Well, that's my question to you. What are you believing in or what are you believing for? We know what the devil wants you to believe in. He wants you to believe that the world is going to hell. He wants you to believe that there's nothing that can be done about the things that we see, no matter how wrong they may be and no matter how much we know the truth. He's doing everything he can to weaken us. For the single purpose of trying to get us to let go. Let go of our faith. Let go of believing God for his best. Let go of believing God for people to be brought into the kingdom of God. To turn loose of everything that we know or believe that we knew concerning God and his word. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come to, into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. Now there was something about them believing that Jesus could do this that was necessary for them to receive their sight. It may be that these two guys were blind from birth. It may have been that these guys had experienced blindness for so long that they were just trying something out. We've seen that happen so many times with so many people. They're really not believing God for anything they're just hoping that something will happen to bring them blessing. There's a big difference between hoping something good will happen and believing God to honor his word. How many times did Jesus say unto the, the people what he told these guys, according to your faith, be it unto you? Jesus didn't command them to see With one guy, he made he spit in the ground, uh, spit into the dirt, and made clay out of the spittle, and put it on the guy's eyes and told him to go wash off in the pool of Siloam. Jesus didn't do that here. In another place, Jesus spit on his hand and touched the blind man's eyes, and that restored his sight. Now, folks, I'm not sure what the healing properties of spit are.
But when you're prompted by the Holy Ghost to do it, apparently it works. So Jesus asked him, do you believe that I am able to do this? There are circumstances and there are situations that the devil will bring against you and me that are so severe and so long-lasting that it can steal a person's faith and rob them of God's best. It's possible, I guess, that that was the situation which could have occurred where these two blind men were. And if that were the case, then Jesus would rightly need to ask, do you believe that I can do this? They didn't hesitate. They said unto him, yes, Lord. Jesus did, did not press the issue any further. He didn't ask, why do you believe that I can do this? What is your faith based on? Jesus, Jesus just simply said, according to your faith, be it unto you. If they had lied about whether or not they believed he was able to do it, they wouldn't have gotten a thing. According to your faith, be it unto you. Well, apparently they really did believe it because their sight came back to them. Matthew chapter 14. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples. This is Matthew 14, verse 22. Straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is the Spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. We see Jesus confronted by Peter and challenged by Peter to let him do the same things that Jesus was doing, meaning walking on the water. Now, it's a strange thing that Jesus did not rebuke Peter for asking that. At least in the mind of so many people, the idea that Jesus would share 
this great miracle with somebody like Peter that was so in and out about so many things. He was certainly impulsive. And one thing about Peter that Jesus apparently loved is that there was no compromise in Peter. He was either in or he was out. And Peter just simply said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. Now, what spiritual benefit would be gained by Peter walking on the water? This is not a spiritual thing. This is not something that required, is required for the will of God to take place. And so there's no rebuke when Peter challenges Jesus to challenge him. You know, you never find any place in the Scripture where Jesus tells somebody that they're trying to go too far. We know and Jesus probably knows that the time is coming when the events of John chapter 14 bring him to tell the disciples, he that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because of going to my Father. There's nothing outside of the work that Jesus did on the cross that Jesus ever tries to temper somebody's faith or tries to keep them from going as far as they will go to believe God and to receive the supernatural. Now, I know a lot of times this thing's going to try to get me yet. <laughs> there are so many times that we question whether somebody is really in faith about something. There are a lot of times when we see people that have gone past faith into presumption. But Jesus never had that. There was never a time when Jesus told somebody they were going too far in faith. Never. He talked about impossible things being made possible. He told his disciples time and time again. If you believe or have faith in the words that you say or the things that you do, anything and everything is possible.
in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the, house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Here's another case where Jesus basically said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. Here we see a situation of great faith. We see a situation where she crosses ethnic lines. By that, I mean, Jesus himself said, first and foremost, that the, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that later the Gentiles would trust in his, his name. She made that happen then for her. Her refusal to be denied was the thing that made her have great faith. She refused to give up. Jesus gives her a couple of chances to give up right here on the spot. But she makes it personal. She makes it a relationship issue. And Jesus couldn't deny that. He could not withhold the blessings of God because of the faith that she exhibited. Even when Jesus apparently discourages her I think discouragement is probably not a strong enough word for what could have taken place in and within her. But she refuses to be denied. Folks, there's something about what we refuse to have or we refuse not to have that I think a lot of people miss out on. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You decide and start it here on the earth. I believe these last days are going to give us a lot of opportunity to decide what will be bound on the earth concerning us and what will be loosed in heaven concerning us as well.
Luke chapter 17, verse 1, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were, were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he's trespassed against thee seven times in a day, and seven times a day turn again to you, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto him, Lord, increase our faith. Now they understood something that most of the church world today doesn't know. They recognized that, a, that forgiveness was a matter of faith. That means it's not a matter of feeling. It means that if we only forgive people we feel like forgiving, we're going to miss out on a lot of good things from God. You may remember in Mark chapter 11, Jesus describing the operation of faith to the disciples, the God kind of faith. He tells them in verse 23, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24 goes on to say, Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them, and you shall have them. So he says, Faith works by speaking in verse 23, and faith works in prayer in verse 24. But then verse 25, he says, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. It's the only hindrance that Jesus mentions concerning faith. It's the absolute only thing that he says from your standpoint, from your and my part, that can stop our faith from producing So the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. What does that mean? Well, this is the part that gets a little iffy for me because I'm not sure the disciples were smart enough to have figured this out. There were a lot of things that we take for granted, we know and take for granted that they didn't know. And the only reason that we know is because we have the ability to look backwards at the finished work of Jesus where they didn't have that, at least not at this point in time. So when the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith, the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might or would say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. In other words, if you're going to walk in forgiveness, you're going to have to speak forgiveness. If you're going to operate with undeterred faith, then you're going to have to talk walking in love. The more you say you forgive somebody, the more you confess it to yourself, the more your feelings will begin to line up with it. But it doesn't start with the feelings. It starts with the confession. 
that confession will change your feelings and bring you to the place where God wants you to be. Now we started off with Jesus in the back of the ship and the disciples coming to him and waking him up and saying we're about to drown. I guess they wanted Jesus to be awake for them drowning. And Jesus just simply calmed the storm. He rebuked the wind and the waves and there was a great calm. And that's when Jesus said, where is your faith in Luke 8, 25? O ye of little faith in Matthew chapter 8. Smith Wigglesworth was a man that was greatly used of God. There were in his ministry 26 confirmed cases of people being raised from the dead. He was an English preacher, but he made three or four trips across the ocean. People traveled by boat in his days. And so he traveled by ocean liner across the Atlantic Ocean to come to America. And he said in each of his voyages, there was a storm that arose somewhere during their trip. And he said that he went to the bow of the boat, or the testimony was it wasn't him that was giving it, but those that were traveling with him. He went to the bow of the boat and rebuked the storm, and the storm ceased. He had a similar experience three different times as Jesus in the ship as related in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8. But turn with me to Acts chapter 27. And let's pick up the story with Paul and Luke and maybe some others that were with him. Up until this point in time, Paul has testified and spoken of Jesus and his salvation experience to Felix, to Festus, and to King Agrippa. Now, all of these were rulers of some type, and it really identifies that Paul kind of climbed the ladder of those that were in government over the Jews the people of Israel in his day. It stops with King Agrippa in the last part of chapter 26 saying that if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, he would probably be let go and released. But Paul is on his way to Rome. I want to back up just a little bit and remind you of how he got there. In Acts chapter 19, it tells us about Paul's time at Ephesus. He spent three, three and a half years in Ephesus and got more ministry results from that location than any other time or any other place that he went. It says that after a span of about two years, 
all of Asia heard the word. It tells us about the, the story of the seven sons of Siva who took it upon themselves to cast the devil out of somebody or tried to cast the devil out of somebody by using the name that Paul spoke. They adjured the, the evil spirit in this man in the city of Ephesus to turn him loose and to come out of him in the name of, Paul, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the guy with the evil spirit said, we know Paul and we know Jesus, but who are you? And then he jumped on them, stripped them of their clothing and left them running down the street. And people saw and heard about these things and committed themselves completely to the Lord and got rid of the other false idols and occult things that they had in their houses, things that they were still holding on to. It was proof to them that the name of Jesus was supreme. So if that was the case, then why do they need the other stuff? Following that, it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. That brings us to Acts chapter 27. And when it was determined that they should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners under one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. And entering into the ship of Adramatium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. Luke is writing this, and he's part of the, Paul's company. He's an eyewitness testimony to these things. And the next day we touched down at, at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends and to refresh himself. And when, when he had launched from, from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us, on, put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Sinaitis or something, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salomone. And hardly passing it, came into a place which is called the Fair Haven, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage not only to the lading and ship but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also if by any means they might attain to Phoenix and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euryclidon, 
And when the ship was caught, we could not bear up into the wind, lest we, so then we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clota, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even it was it told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. Why didn't Paul rebuke the storm? That's what Jesus did. The works I do, you shall do also, Jesus said. Did Paul have not have enough faith? Was his faith in other things, other areas, but not in conquering storms? I'm sure the people that heard these things were sure glad and hoped them to be true. And if the storm had ceased the next day, I'm sure that would have made Paul look pretty important in their eyes. Verse 27 continues the story. But when the 14th night was come, Three nights before, now there's 14 more ahead. When the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and found 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast the four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul doesn't say he can't be saved. See, Paul's going to make it no matter what. And when we started in Acts chapter 19, in verse 21... God had already been dealing with Paul about going to Jerusalem. You remember the dust stuff about that. Paul said that in every company, or Luke said, in every city that they went to, the Holy Ghost witnessed to them that they were going to put Paul in chains. Even when they were in the house of Philip, Agabus the prophet came from Jerusalem and took Paul's girdle and bound himself and said, so shall they do to the man that owns this girdle in Jerusalem. 
Everybody tried to talk him out of going. But we see that Paul had been directed by the Lord. He had at least an inward witness that Jerusalem was the place that he was supposed to go. And after that, he'd wind up going to Rome. That was why when he was in Jerusalem and the high priest and the council brought accusations against him. Stories that they couldn't prove. He was facing an unjust judge, a governor of the city, that was trying to let him loose into the hands of the Jews, which had already sworn a pact between themselves that they wouldn't eat again until Paul was dead. Paul knew about these things. His nephew brought him word of the plot of the Jews against him. And so Paul appealed to Caesar. He appealed to Caesar for protection. And that's what put him on this voyage to begin with. So Paul knows that God's plan for him was first to go to Jerusalem. He did that. He was put in chains just like the Holy Ghost had witnessed to him. He had experienced that. And then when he appealed to Caesar... It took him out of the hands of the Jews and put him in the hands of the Romans. Agrippa would have turned him loose, as we said before, in Acts chapter 26, the end of the chapter. He would have turned him loose, except that he had already appealed to Caesar. And so he was bound to send him forth. So Paul knows that he's going to make it. But apparently from what the angel told him, if these sailors didn't stay with the ship or the soldiers, if they didn't stay with the ship, then the rest of the people would have perished as well. So then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming, Paul brought them, besought all them to take meat, saying, this day is the 14th day that you have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. So he's been on this ship for more than two weeks. Four days up front, 14 days since the angel has appeared to him. Why in the world did it take 14 days? I mean, once the angel has spoken, wouldn't you expect it to happen instantly? Or quickly, at least. I've seen a lot of people wait the th three or four days, but lose their faith in the 14. So Paul tells them, This day is the 14th day that you have tarried and continued fasting, having taken or eaten nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spake, he took bread and gave thanks to God and broke it in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were all in the ship... 203 score and 16 souls. That's 276 people, I think. 
And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into which they were minded if it were possible to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up anchors, they committed themselves into the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoised up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part of the ship was broken with the violence of the, ra- of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept him from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and to get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to the land. You got storms that come against both Jesus and Paul. And they both overcame the storm. Jesus overcame his storms. By rebuking the sea and the wind. Paul overcame his by riding it out. You can't say one way was according to the plan of God and the other way wasn't. You can't say that Jesus was any better in the way that he handled his than Paul handled his. It was certainly more pleasant the way Jesus handled it for a shorter period of time. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in closing. Paul speaks of himself and he says, are they talking about those that have exalted themselves to the Corinthians are they ministers of Christ I speak as a fool I am more in labors more abundant in stripes above measure in prisons more frequent in deaths oft of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one thrice was I beaten with rods once was I stoned thrice I suffered shipwreck one of those is Acts chapter 27 a night and a day I have been in the deep in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things which are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Folks, this list of things that Paul identifies gives us a sampling of the trouble that he encountered by simply obeying God. But for me, it's more than that. This is a list of things that wouldn't wouldn't make him let go. This is the list of adversities 
that we're not great enough for Paul to turn loose of his faith. This list, the only time that we have this list, was a roster of things that the devil brought against him that were unsuccessful to stop him or to make him turn loose of his faith. I dare say that most Christians nowadays, if they experience just one of the things on this list, they'd be in the wind. But there's a great need in this last day for people to grow a spine that's as strong as a crowbar and to determine by their own will that they will never let go. I believe that's more important the further and further we get toward the last day, the very last day. The closer we get to Jesus' return, the greater a commodity that spiritual strength is and will be. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. We need to settle it in our own minds and our own hearts that we will never, ever, ever give up. So that when the Son of Man returns, at least he'll find us in faith. There'll be a lot that depart from the faith, but not you and me. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you for your word. And because we believe your word, believe you, we refuse to fear. Because you are with us, we know you are our God and will see us through. You strengthen us. You help us. You uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness. And in your righteousness, we are established. Oppression is far from us, for we do not fear. And terror does not come nigh us. Therefore, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against us in judgment, we do condemn. This is our heritage as your children. And our righteousness is of you. Thank you, Father, for seeing us through. Thank you, Father, for seeing us through all of those things that Jesus told us were coming and would be in the last days. We claim victory over famine. We claim victory over persecution. We claim total victory through your word and the strength of the Holy Ghost within us. 
Use us, Lord, according to our faithfulness. Thank you for seeing us through. Thank you, Father, for your deliverance. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. God bless you, folks. Have a great day.